0: The scripture reading is found in um, the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. It's in the sheet that you received. It's also in your pew Bibles on page 8. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, So that you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram told Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their. I'm sorry. He um, excuse me. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of um, of Mora. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The New Testament reading is found in the bulletin. It's, um, It's from Hebrews chapter 1. 11 verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Whose designer and builder is God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm
1: bringing your tithes in our offerings. We come not because you need them. Our Father, you, you hold a universe, a whole universe is yours. You have all the wealth, it all belongs to you. Our Father, we don't come to give. Because of your need. We come to give because of our need. Our need to confess that we're not self-made people. That we're not self-made men and women. That we're not autonomous. We've come to confess, Father, once more that we are charity cases. It's hard for us to say that. We don't want to say that. And yet we know we are. We have nothing unless you give it to us. And that's why you've called us to give a tithe. To come every week and remember that we're not autonomous. That we're not self-made. That we're dependent people. And so, Father, with laughter and joy we come. For your grace, Father, has filled us. Your grace has met our every need. Our Father, everything we have comes from you. And with laughter, we bring you your tithes and our offerings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Children, you are dismissed to your regular classes. This morning, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We come to His table. If you're visiting, please know that if you own Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you own Him as your Lord, you come to just as you've sung with us, just as you've prayed with us, you come to this table with us this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are a congregation of priests who once more bow before you. You've called us to be prophets in our homes, in our neighbors, in our neighborhoods. Wherever we are, you've called us to be salt and light, to to live your word where we are, and that's what the prophet does. He comes with a message from you, and he speaks your word, and all of us are prophets with a small p. Father, but you've also called us to be priests and come before you for the world around us, for our families, for our children, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, our Father, we bow before you this morning not just as individual priests. Now, it's our joy. We do that all week long. It's our joy to be a congregation of priests this morning. We thank you for how you've answered our prayers in the past, how you've blessed us so. And so we come again to pray. And our Father, we ask for Joe and Mimi Anderson. We pray that you'd bless Joe where he is in the hospital right now. Speak to him as only you're able to speak to him. Encourage him. We pray that you would not only give him physical strength, but Father, most of all, we pray that you would give him spiritual strength. Our Father, cause him to know your presence. Cause him to remember the gospel. Cause him to be a blessing, Father, to the doctors, to the nurses, to all who enter that room. We pray that you would bring healing. We pray for Rick Abernathy's father. We pray that you would bless his family. Bless those that care for him. Bless his family. We pray that, Father, you would speak to him now as only you can speak to him. We pray that you would speak to each member of the family that they might not be disheartened. You might remember that he is in your hands. Father, we we pray for our country this morning. We pray that Father, first and most of all, that righteousness would reign. We pray that you would bless our president, bless our vice president. Give them strength for these days. Father, we pray for that, that once more you might have mercy. Send another John the Baptist. Send someone who can preach God's word to this nation once more in your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would cause your church, the church of Jesus Christ, to stand strong. In this society that is moved so quickly away from your word, away from you, away from the gospel, and is even turned hostile. Oh, Father, we pray that your church will not be intimidated. We pray that you would strengthen your church spiritually. Raise up pulpits that will bring the fire of your word to our culture. We pray for Christ Presbyterian. For independent, for second. For grace community, for the churches of covenant presbytery we pray father that we would be bold that father our pulpits would not waver now as we turn to your word once more we know that John Sartell cannot teach so it will make any difference in our lives and so right now Once more we pray that you would speak to us, Father. He cannot speak so that we will be changed at the very core of our being. But we've heard your voice in this place. And we know you can speak exactly like that. Maybe change some for the first time. Oh, Father. In these next few minutes, may we hear your voice for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. When God comes calling. Let's put Abraham in context because Genesis 12 begins a whole new story. In the great story. Let's put Abraham in context. The first 11 chapters of Genesis. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We see the world spiraling downward. After the fall. There is universal ungodliness. But there is one godly line. In this great chaos of sin. One family line that remembers the one God of creation. It is the line of Seth, the son of Adam and Eve. From the fourth chapter of Genesis, we see this godly lineage develop. Look on your scripture sheets or in your Bibles at Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began, began, began to call upon the name of the Lord. Later, Enoch, the man who walked with God, came from Seth's line. Noah. Remember Noah? Noah came from the line of Seth. But by the time we get to Terah, who is Abraham's father, this good family had gone bad. They lived in the Ur of the Chaldees. Terah, Abraham's father, his name meant, Terah's name meant moon. The city of Ur was known for its worship of the moon. Years later, Joshua wrote that Abraham's family, that this line of Seth had moved away from God into idolatry. Look at Joshua 24, 1 through 2. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. We read that in Genesis eleven thirty, 30, just in the chapter before this, that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. This was the end of the line. Abraham represented the end of Seth's line. That's why this chapter is so pivotal. He was doing, Abraham, Terry, he was doing what everyone else was, the rest of the world. Worshipping and serving created things instead of the creator. Abraham's family had become polytheists. Now I want to stop right here. I didn't intend to put this in a message earlier this week, but I couldn't get away from it. I want to ask a hard question. What lineage, what lineage are you leaving in this world? What would God say of your line, the line of your family, the line of my family? Are you leaving a godly heritage for your children and grandchildren? Abraham grew up in a privileged town. Tara was wealthy. He provided wealth for his family. Think about that. That's a wonderful thing to be able to do that, to hand that heritage down. But this same father had also handed down the idols of his life to his sons. He did not hand down the same bacchan of faith that Seth had handed down, that Enoch had handed down, that Enoch had handed down. Faith had once flourished in this good family, but it had completely disappeared because somewhere and sometime there was a generation that counted it unimportant. Somewhere, sometime in this godly line, in a family that had been faithful in a chaotic world of sin, there was a generation that forgot. And when Abraham was born, they were an ungodly family centered on the idols of this world, centered on self and success and money and pleasure. I had to ask myself this week, as I looked at this, I had to remember what my father handed me. And I'm so grateful. And I had to ask, what have I handed my children? Fathers and mothers, what have we handed our children? We're so concerned that our children have this education. We're so concerned that our children have this wealth. I think it was Wellington that said, educate a child without Jesus Christ and all you have is a clever devil. You You could change that and say, Make your sons and daughters wealthy, and all you have is a rich devil. What have we left our children, and what are we leaving our children? This is so important. In 1580, a Dutch, there was a Dutch Protestant leader by the name of Kleis, He was arrested. He was condemned as a heretic. Eventually, he was burned at the stake. Very cruel death. When the tragedy was over, his wife took their small boy by the hand and walked along with them. Think about this. What do you do? Your husband, this boy's father, has been martyred, killed. They. She took him through the back streets of the town to the hill where he had been burned. The crying widow picked up ashes, the ashes of her husband. And she put them in a small pouch. She tied the pouch around the boy's neck. She told him, she kneeled down in front of him. And said, "Son, I place these ashes on your heart. Whenever and wherever in this world there is injustice and wrong, whenever and wherever Christ is slandered, these ashes will beat on your heart, and you will speak without fear, even in the face of death, even in the face of death." What was she saying? You have a great heritage, son. Remember who you are. Remember that the faith that your father has handed you, it cost your father his life. This morning, we're either leaving monuments of faith to our children or we're leaving monuments of unfaith. Monuments, these monuments are constructed every day of our lives. You can send your child to church. But if every day, every hour of every week they're seeing something different from parents, the message of the church. Will not be effective. Church uh, or Chuck Swindoll wrote about this being a long process as parents in our homes. He wrote this quote: "Over the long haul, it's over the long haul. Believe me, the race is not a sprint; it's a marathon. There are no fifty-yard dash courses on character building in Christ." This is not dumping a load of truth once or twice a year. What heritage are we leaving our children? What heritage did we receive? Maybe you say, John, I didn't receive that heritage. Well, you can start a new lineage you can start a new lineage. When Abraham was in his father's house, in the midst of idol worship, God comes calling. The calling of God, as we look at it here, this calling of God to Abraham was radical, and it always is radical as long as we're in this world. In his gracious and complex providence, God literally invaded the life of Abraham. Look at verse 1. And now the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. How's that called? Go from your country. It's a very strong Hebrew word. The King James Version gets it. It says, Get yourself out. <laughs> Abraham, get yourself out. Gone. From what? From your country. Where you're known, the country you know, the country where you're comfortable. But then he added, not just from your country. From your kindred. Your kindred are idol worshipers. Abram, get yourself out. And then he said, from your father's house. I'm calling you out of your your, your culture. Complete culture that surrounds you from your house to your kindred, to your country, get out. That's a radical call. That would be a radical change in Abraham's life. Has the call of God changed? Not at all. It's still just as radical. You see, we, we sometimes say, come as sinners, come to the cross. And be saved. He has taken our sin. He's taken the guilt of our sin. He's taken the punishment of our sin. Come and confess. But see, that's also a call to incredible change of following Christ. It's not just that we say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I've got this fire insurance now. No, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. And if you know anything about the life of Christ, it's radically different from the way of the world. He calls us to leave our idols. Remember the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Love me first, more than mother and father, more than son or daughter. Jesus said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. You love someone that way, you're following them. Christ, what would you have of me? We can underline this. We looked at the call of Abraham in the Old Testament. Look at the radical call in the New Testament. Young man, Luke 18, a young man comes to Jesus. and We know two things about him from, it's recorded in several of the Gospels. We know he was young and we know he was a millionaire. Look, listen to the conversation. Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? He asked the right question. Jesus said, why do you call me good? Jesus wanted to tell him, I'm more than good. I'm the son of God. He said, no one is good except God alone. Then he said, you know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. (laughs) And this this young man said, Oh, I've done that from my youth up. And Jesus could have said, Yeah, right. You can sell that somewhere else. He could have told him he could have told him the last time he spit. He could have told him the last time he'd committed adultery in his heart. He could tell him the last time he'd committed idolatry in his heart. He could have told him the last time he had stolen, or whatever. But instead, he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus picked out the one thing. He said, S- sell everything you have. Luke 18, 22. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. He didn't say, Come and bring it to me, like the televangelist. That's not Jesus. He said, Take it and give it to the poor. Then you come and follow me. Would you have done that? If you were a millionaire, would you have said, Okay. I'll be back in a couple of days and go and sold everything, sold it all, and then come back and say, okay, Jesus. You need to know that he didn't say that to him because Jesus hated wealth. In some churches, and some Christian movements, there, there's this anti-wealth thing. You never find that in Scripture. Abraham was wealthy. David was wealthy. Probably Isaiah was wealthy. Probably Paul was wealthy. I mean wealthy, not just spiritually, but wealthy in being people of means. Jesus didn't have anything against money. God made money. Jesus said this to this young man. Because this young man said, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said, you've got to love God first. And right now, you don't love God first. You love your money. It's idolatry. Jesus stood beside the man's idol and said, choose. That's what he did with Abraham. Get away from the idols, Abraham. Get away from the idols of your father's house. It was a radical call. Abraham didn't even know where he was going. He said, to a land I will show you Abraham said, well, where is it? He said, I'll show you when you get there. He spent years getting there. You think when, you think when Jesus, you know, he Peter had heard Jesus preach. He talked to him. And then there came a point that Jesus walked up to Peter. And Peter was there on the shore with his boats, with his nets. He says, Peter, I've got something else for you to do. Follow me. And we read, and Peter left his nets and left his boat. He left his work. People, that's radical. Paul was on his way to Damascus. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus with a passion. Hated the name Jesus. And suddenly he's in the dust. He said, what's happening? Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus, Paul. Do you think Peter knew? When Jesus said, Follow me, do you think he knew that he would end up upside down on a cross in Rome because he's in love for Christ? Do you think Paul knew that he would take this name that he had hated and he would preach it all over Western Asia? And all over Eastern Europe, he would preach it to Caesar even. That's radical. Jesus will leave no part of your life untouched. It's a radical call. God comes calling. The calling of God is always gracious. It's an act of God's grace. Abraham was an idolater. God didn't look like he did at Job and said, wow, look at my servant Job. He looked at Abraham and he saw idolatry. God did not call him because he was street smart. He didn't call him because he was wealthy. He didn't call him because he was physically strong. Abraham could not say, well, of course you call me. It makes sense. Look how well known I am. Every time God speaks into this sinful culture and calls people to him, it's a gracious call. He does not call us because we're good and deserving. He doesn't call us because of what we can do for him. Throughout my ministry, throughout, and I just, I've gotten where I just laugh. Now. It's really humorous when you think about it. I pretend like I'm standing in the throne room of God and somebody comes up and tells me, Some well meaning Christian will say, You know, if this, do we need to pray for this person? Well, why do we need to pray for that person? Because he could do so much for Christ. Because he could have just a tremendous influence. We need to pray for this athlete. Think of the people he could influence. We need to pray for this actor, or we need to pray for this CEO, or whatever. Really? Let's see. God holds a universe that has 100 million galaxies in it. Think about that. Not solar system, galaxies. You really think he needs somebody to help him? He can send 40,000 angels. He can send 100,000 angels to do anything, to do his bidding. He didn't call Abraham because he needed him. He was in mercy. He was in grace. It's only when we realize that we're charity cases physically and spiritually that we're saved. That our lives are changed. We, the old theologians used to say we're non-possa, non-pacare, not possible not to sin. What did we do to set this table? I'll tell you what we did. We crucified the Son of God. Every single one of us. And he called us. It's a, it's a radical call. It's a gracious call. A call full of grace. And finally, the calling of God, it will always affect the world around us. Look at look at Genesis twelve, two and three. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, from that time forward, if you read the life of Abraham, everywhere he went, even though He went to Egypt and lied, even though Abraham sinned over and over again. He blessed the world wherever he went. It's 3,000 years later and we're still talking about Abraham. He means for our lives, because of what he did, not because we We've got this or that, but because of Christ in our lives, we're going to be a blessing to the world around us. What, is, what does he say? What did Jesus say when he said, What's the first commandment? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. What's the second? He said, the, He volunteered the second man. He said, The second commandment is like it love your neighbors yourself. You know what? If you have Christ in your life and you love your neighbors yourself, you're going to bless your neighbor. You really are. You can't help it. Wherever the church of Jesus Christ goes, you can't find a place where the church is gone, where the church didn't build children's homes, schools, and hospitals. Why? Jesus says you're going to be a blessing wherever you go. It's no, it's no accident that the hospitals in Memphis are named Methodist Hospital, Baptist Hospital, St. Francis Hospital, St. Jude Hospital, St. Joseph's Hospital. It's like that all over the world. William Wilberforce was a member of England's Parliament. As a young man, he was like the rich young ruler. He was wealthy, had position, had power. Early in life, he lived a pleasure-oriented, fast lane life. He was a brilliant scholar and leader in parliament. But then Christ invaded Christ's cause and everything changed. William Wilberforce devoted the rest of his life to one great total work for Christ. He saw the ugliness of slavery. He saw the scandal of slavery. And of course, all the institutions that were making money from this, they stood opposed to him. They laughed at him. Vilified, the papers, the institutions, the government. Twenty-six long years, William Little, William Wilberforce battled, and finally, Parliament passed the Slave Trade Act of
0: 1807,
1: and everything changed. William Wilberforce received news that it had passed on his deathbed. You may say, John, I'm not Abraham. I'm not William Wilberforce. I'm not Peter. I'm not Paul. Maybe one of our children will be. I can't build hospitals. I can't build schools. Well, every once in a while, because of that, I go through, I have a habit. And I write down the people's names that influenced me in my life in Christ like no one else. Most of you never met my father, Preston Sartell. He's was a quiet man, very quiet, sort of like me. Uh, a scholar. He didn't talk much at all. I could ride with him in the car for six hours and he wouldn't say anything to me. But when he spoke, you listened. The world hadn't heard of him. But I'll tell you this. I'm alive today because of him and his prayers. And I don't think I would be in this pulpit. I know I wouldn't be in this pulpit if it hadn't been for him. Because of my father on his knees, I believe I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian. I believe that was the reason. Then there were Jim and there was Jim and Maud Hawkins. Two incredible people that lived in the mountains in the coal fields of Virginia in Coburn, Virginia. He was a coal miner. Maud was his wife. I met them when my sophomore year in college. And they forever affected my life. But you hadn't heard of Maude and Jim Hawkins. You know what? They only had high school educations. But I can tell you that she visited the White House at the request of the president. Then there was this elder in a Presbyterian church in Cedar Bluff, Virginia. He was 70 years old when I met him. He was a coal miner. He changed my life. I watched as lawyers, as doctors came and sat at his feet. Men with multiple degrees. And I really don't think he finished high school, he wasn't wealthy. Christ was in his life in a powerful way. And the wisdom of God's word was in his life. You see, you have a greater story than Abraham to tell. Abraham didn't know about this table. He never tasted the body and blood of Christ. He didn't know that a descendant of his named Mary would give birth and be a virgin birth. To one who would be called the Son of God, and Son of Man. He didn't know that that one would take his sin and take his guilt and take his punishment. But you know all that. You see? You have a greater story than Abraham did. It's time to come to the table. Our hymn is when I survey the wondrous cross.